take your Bibles and, uh, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Um, as, you, uh, as you turn there, I want to recognize uh, tomorrow in, uh, in our country is a special day set aside to honor veterans. And uh, here as we sit here today... Worshiping our God, gathering together without fear, gathering together um, in freedom, uh, we need to recognize uh, God's grace in uh, the fact that he has, um, he has given us uh, the protection, the freedom, the liberty that we have, and uh, that, that's come at a cost. And there are many uh, who have sacrificed, uh, some, uh, some in, in, uh, in small ways, some in large ways, but Everyone who has served has sacrificed and given uh, in order to be able, for us to be able to do what we're doing right now. And uh, so if, if you're here today and you are a veteran, would you just stand so we can thank the Lord for you? Are, uh, we are blessed, uh, and uh, we're blessed by the Lord through you, and we are grateful. And um, we get to do what we do today because because uh, you have served, because you have sacrificed. So we're grateful for that. Um, let's read together the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter three. We're going to uh, focus today on verses eight through thirteen, but I, I'd like for us just to be able to get the context of. What we're looking at today to start in verse 1 and uh, we'll go through verse 13. So would you read with me Genesis 3 starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? 
the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I don't remember exactly how old I was, um, but I was of tooth-losing age. I was right in the middle of the tooth-losing age. Um, and uh, I, one night, I was, uh, I was standing at the bathroom counter with my parents. I, I think I had just lost a tooth. And uh, as I was losing teeth, I was receiving, you know, certain financial compensation. And uh, I was pretty content with this little arrangement that I had. I was pretty comfortable in this, uh, this situation I found myself in. Um, but that night, for whatever reason, I started asking some questions. Too many questions. And my parents gave me some, some honest answers. Some honest answers that led me to understand that the source of the financial compensation that I had been receiving was not as reliable as I had once thought. And uh, if you catch my drift, trying to be careful how I say this. Um, and so as I, um, as I realized that my, my benefactor was not quite as reliable as I thought that he once was, I was upset. I was really upset. In fact, I was so upset, immediately out of my mouth came a bad word. Yeah. Well, as we stood there at the bathroom counter, my dad heard this four-letter word come out of my mouth. He knew exactly what punishment fit that crime. And so he picked up my toothbrush off the counter, and he took a bottle of soft soap, and he put that soap on the bristles where only Colgate had gone before. But before he could wash my mouth out with soap, I made a run for it. I mean, I was running down the hall. I was getting as far away from my dad as I could possibly get. And I, I ran to the furthest room away from where my dad was. I ran to the darkest corner of that, of that room. I found myself a hiding spot. I ran and I hid. And that is the natural, sinful response to, that we have when we sin and we get caught. We want to run and hide. We want to get as far away from the person that we are accountable to. The person who is going to judge us, who is going to punish us. We want to run and hide. Um... I didn't pick a very good hiding spot, though. Uh, as it turns out, the room that I chose to hide in was my dad's room. And uh, the back corner that I found myself hiding in was his closet uh, behind a, a row of his boots. And um, it turns out I was about as good at finding a hiding spot as Adam, as we just read, who hides in God's garden and behind the trees that God had planted. Anyway, um, I wasn't, so it was kind of foolish for me to, uh, to, to pick that as a hiding place. Um, but as I look back on that, I can't help but wonder if, if maybe there was something else going on. If maybe I, without realizing it, chose that place because I, I knew deep down inside that that was a safe place. I think of the times that I went in that room, I ran to that room uh, because I had a nightmare. I needed a comfort. Think of the times that I ran into that room 
because I was wounded and I needed to be bandaged up. Think of the times that I was scared or hurt or just lonely and I needed to find someone. I knew I could go to that room to find what I needed. As we look at our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 3, we're we're looking here at people just like us who want to run just like we do when we sin, who want to hide just like we do when we sin. It is our natural response when we are sinning and we get caught to want to run away from the God to whom we are accountable, to want to hide from the God who is holy and perfect. But what I hope that we can see from this passage today, what I hope we can see in the gospel of Jesus Christ today, that if we're in sin, what we need to do is not run from God, but run to God. I hope that Through this passage today, the Lord, that you hear the Lord's invitation to not hide from him, but to hide in him. So let's turn now our attention to this passage as we see the wrong response to sin, but the natural response to sin that we find in Adam and Eve. And just like we said last week as we looked at the first part of this passage, uh, this is us. We will see a mirror as we look down on the words of this passage today. So let's get into the text. Uh, before we do, uh, let's just back up and think about, okay, how did, we, how did we get here? In chapter 2, we saw God created paradise. He put man and woman in paradise. It was very good. They had everything that they could ever need and everything that they could ever want. They had each other. They had a perfect relationship. They had a perfect relationship with God. The greatest thing about paradise was the presence of God. At the end of chapter 2, we find out uh, that man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had moral innocence. They had Nothing to hide. But then as we read a moment ago, the tempter invaded paradise. And as the woman was deceived by the tempter, she gave in to what the tempter was deceiving her into. She disobeyed the one command that God had given them. And her husband as well, gave in to the sin that his wife had just engaged in as well. And as we read in verse 7, they saw something that they had never seen before. They saw shame. They saw that they had something to hide. They saw that they needed to take cover. But what their eyes saw may have led them to shame, but what it, it's what their ears heard that leads them to terror. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife 
hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, it wouldn't have been unusual for them to hear the Lord God walking in the garden. This was where God dwelt with man and woman. It was normal for him to be there. And it was a blessing, or it had been a blessing that he was there. But now, what once had been the sound of blessing is now the sound of something that makes them fear. It puts terror in their hearts. So they hid. They had already hid their nakedness from each other, and now they're hiding themselves from God because they know what they've done. But, of course, like I discovered, what they will soon discover is that there's no hiding from God. What we need to remember, there's no hiding from God. We can hide maybe from other people, We can even deceive ourselves into thinking that we're hiding something from ourselves, but there is no hiding from God. God says in Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There is no hiding from God, but notice that he approaches them and and he doesn't expose them Look what he does in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, the first thing we need to notice here, he calls to the man. Now, the serpent had deceived the woman. The woman was the one who gave in to temptation. The woman was the one who had the first bite. The woman was the one who gave it to her husband. And who does God hold accountable for that? Her husband. Now, husbands, we need to we need to see that and we need to recognize our own responsibility here. That just like here, see what God had done is he had put an order and a responsibility and a structure in this relationship. He had given the husband to be the, uh, to the, the one who was accountable, the one who was responsible, the head of the relationship. And sure enough, God holds the husband accountable. And we need to recognize too, husbands, that when there is a failure in our marriage, we are the ones who God will hold accountable. We are the ones who are responsible. I mean, if you think, take for example, a conflict within marriage. Now, in in any given conflict, you may both be sinning against each other. She may even be sinning against you more. She may have started it, and you might think in a a conflict, well, you know, she's the one who's really in the wrong here, so, you know, this is going to get fixed. It's up to her. But that's not how God holds us accountable. God holds, yet now, you know, the, the sin of the wife is a genuine thing, and she will be held accountable. And the sin of the husband is something that he is responsible for, and he is accountable. But, the, but God holds the husband responsible for the relationship. So God comes to the man. This failure in humanity, God holds Adam, the head, responsible for. He comes to him, but notice again how he comes to him. Where are you? 
where are you? Now, obviously, God is not trying to acquire information that he doesn't already have. He's pursuing his fallen image bearers. He's drawing them out. Where are you, he says. We see here something that echoes throughout the rest of Scripture, that God is a good shepherd who goes after the wandering lost sheep. Where are you? But Adam, even though he realizes that God knows where he is, he, he still is trying to hide. Look at, look at verse 10. And he said, man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So notice, even though he knows that God has found him, he, he's still trying to hide his sin behind something else. Did you notice? He, he says, he doesn't come out and confess what he did. He says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He's trying to hide what he really did behind something that he is willing to confess. He's willing to own up to this much, but he's hiding the heart of the issue behind a symptom of the true problem. Um, do you ever find yourself doing this? Or maybe, because uh, we all know that we're all sinners, we all know that we're imperfect. So if you never, ever confess to anything, well, everyone knows that you're, you know, you're just faking it. So maybe we find ourselves able to protect ourselves by, by just confessing this much so that I can get off the hook of having to be transparent. And you think, oh man, he's really, you know, he's really honest and open about his struggles. When really, I'm confessing this much to hide something else that's behind that. To hide something else that I really don't want you to know. And maybe, like Adam, maybe Adam is deceiving himself here. And maybe we're deceiving ourselves into thinking, oh yeah, this is the real problem. And I'll confess that, I'll end up to that. When really what God is trying to put his finger on is something behind that. Something that you're still trying to hide. Hide even behind a confession of wrongdoing. Notice also here that, that man is focused on the consequences of what he did, not what he did. He's focused on the fact that he, he saw that he was naked. That was not the problem. That was the consequence and maybe he was upset about the consequence, that his action had a consequence, that his action led to something that was not desirable. It led to a hassle. He had to all of a sudden become a seamstress and put fig leaves together. We can get upset about the consequences of what we have done with, without actually recognizing and admitting the wrong that we did in the first place. Well, of course, even as Adam is trying to hide what he truly did behind the, uh, this, this kind of facade, this false transparency, uh, as he's focusing on the consequences of what happened, God sees right through it. Look at verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice again the, the gentleness the patience of God, the all-knowing one, as he is asking Adam these questions. Did, Adam, you, you and I both know that if 
you know that you're naked, you, you didn't figure that out on your own. What happened? Did, did you do it? Did you, did you do what I, what I told you not to do? Of course, at this point, uh, by the time God asks that question, did you eat? Uh, the jig is up. They realize uh, there's, there's no hiding. Uh, God knows what they have done. And so Adam goes ahead and he confesses, but he's still not done hiding. He'll confess, but only after he, is, he has hid his confession behind a bunch of excuses and finger pointings. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So he, he ends up confessing, but not before he blames his wife. He points the finger, and he says, ah, oh, it's that woman. That, you know, I, I don't know why you're talking to me. You really need to be talking to her. She was the one who got deceived. She was the one who, uh, who took the first bite. She was the one who gave this to me. And you know what? She did all those things. He's not making up a story. But the fact that she sinned, the fact that she deceived him, the fact that she gave him that to eat does not in any way change the fact that he is responsible for the choice that he made. He is responsible for the wrong that he did. But notice he doesn't only blame the woman. He also blames God. Do you see that? In verse, uh, in verse 12 here, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. You know, God, you were the one who said it's not good for man to be alone. You, you said, I'll make him a suitable helper. Now, your word's not mine. Some helper she was. She helped me right into sin. You know, God, if you had been thinking, maybe you wouldn't have given me this woman who caused me to sin. You know, sorry, you know, I don't know what, I don't want, you know, what you're talking to me for. Do you ever blame God for your sin? I mean, not directly, but I mean, Adam didn't either. We can blame God in all sorts of different ways when we sin. Maybe we blame God by blaming our parents. Well, I couldn't help what I did because I was raised a certain way. I only did what I did because of the parents you gave me. Or, or maybe because of a, a tragedy that's happened in our life. Well, you know, I, I just do this because this bad thing happened to me. This bad thing that you let happen, God, what do you want me to do? Or maybe finances, you know. Well, you know, if I had had more money, I wouldn't have had to do what I, do, what I did. But all I had was the money that you gave me. He blames God, the holy God who gave him everything he could possibly want, everything he could possibly need, who gave him the command to obey. He blames God for his sin. It doesn't seem so crazy when we're doing it, but sometimes the Lord needs to bring us back, help us step away. And look at ourselves and see, wow, uh, I didn't realize what I was doing there. So then, 
God turns his attention to the woman in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Same song, different verse. The woman gives the oldest excuse in the book. The devil made me do it. But as we saw in the first seven verses, he didn't make her do it. He did deceive her, and God will hold the serpent accountable for what he did, which was wrong. But the woman ate the fruit because of her desires. It was her choice to eat. She was faced with a decision of whether to trust the word of God or to trust the word of a serpent. And she chose to trust the creature rather than the creator. So here we are. Man and woman sinned. They're caught in their sin. They've been discovered by God. And so they hid. They're hiding physically. They're trying to hide morally. They're blaming everything and everybody except for themselves. Uh, They're entirely focused on themselves, on protecting themselves, on preserving themselves, on justifying themselves, on making themselves look better than they really are. They're not at all focused on the God who is pursuing them in grace. They're not at all focused on the God whom they sinned against. The God with whom they had a relationship that they have just broken and corrupted. And they're not focused on each other either. They're so quick to throw each other under the bus that they're missing the fact that they have sinned. Each one of them has sinned against the other. But they're not focused on that. They're entirely focused on themselves. And, you know, they're bothered by the consequences. They're focused on the implications of what they have done, and they're certainly fearful of the consequences that may come here in the future, in the near future, uh, but they're not bothered by their sin. They're not bothered by the fact that they've sinned against God. They're not bothered by the fact that they've sinned against one another. They're not broken over their sin. They are just focused on trying to preserve themselves. And this is us. This is us. So often, when we sin, the first thing we think is we need to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, justify ourselves. So we need to point the blame outside of ourselves, point the blame to someone else, point the blame maybe even to God himself. We want to point the blame, we want to protect ourselves, we want to run and hide. But as we said at the beginning, we should be running to God. We should be running to Him for protection. Running to Him for preservation. But that doesn't really make sense, does it? I mean, after all, this is the God 
who gave them the command. This is the God that they've sinned against. This is the God who created them and to whom they are accountable. This is the God who is going to judge them. This is the one who can end their lives and who has promised, if you do this, in the day that you do it, you will surely die. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to run to God when he is the one that is the holy judge. It makes a whole lot more sense to go start blaming other people and to point the blame away from ourselves. So why am I saying that? Why am I saying that we should run to this God when we sin? We can run to this God when we sin because... God took the blame for us. The blame that we want to point off to others, God the Son, Jesus Christ, said, I'll take that. I will take the blame. I will take the punishment that they deserve for their sins. We can run to God when we sin because Jesus took the blame for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all Because Jesus took the blame from us, we can come to God and confess our sins. We can come and confess our sins knowing that we have in Christ a substitute. As we read from 1 John before, he is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's demand for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve. And so we can come and we can confess our sins. And when we do that, because of Jesus, we can find forgiveness. We can have our sins taken away if we take them to this God who dealt with the blame that we deserved. And not only that, we can be changed. We can be transformed from people like we see in our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, that we are so like. We can be transformed because of what Jesus did, because he lived a perfect life and died a death in our place and rose again, because he offers to us his record of righteousness, even though all we have is a record of unrighteousness, because he offers us forgiveness to be our substitute, we can run to God for salvation. 
even though in our sin we are tempted to run away from God, to hide from God, because of Jesus, we can hide in God. Did you notice that in the passage that we read at the beginning of the service today? David writes in Psalm 32 and verses 5 through 7, I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed. I came to you with my sin. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Listen to this in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In our sin, we want to hide from God. But God in Christ becomes our hiding place. We want to preserve ourselves when we sin. But God is the one who can preserve us from trouble. The God that we have sinned against is the God in whom we can find forgiveness. The God who is the holy judge is the God who is the gracious Savior. Because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to run away from him anymore. We can run to him. We don't have to hide from him. He is our hiding place. So then in light of what we have seen in Genesis Three, of how not to respond in sin. If we have found a hiding place in Jesus, if, if we have come to him for righteousness, for forgiveness, for salvation, uh, how then should we respond to our sin? Well, we should respond with repentance. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll read verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Uh, what we see here is that the right way to respond when we sin against God is with repentance. Turning away from our sin. So what does this look like? What does true repentance 
look like? Well, first, uh, we must take responsibility. We must take responsibility. Uh, Adam and Eve wanted to point the blame everywhere else besides to themselves. They wanted to blame each other. They wanted to blame the tempter. They wanted to blame God. But true repentance, true godly grief takes responsibility. And here's why we can do that. It's because we, as we take responsibility for our sin, can have confidence that Jesus has taken the punishment for our sin. So because Jesus has taken the blame for us, we can confidently come to God with our sin. We don't have to fear confessing to God. We can come to him and take responsibility for our sin. We who believe the gospel, who proclaim a gospel that says we are sinners, should be the first to admit just how sinful we are. We who have realized that there is nothing good in and of ourselves that God should find commendable, we who ourselves have realized that we cannot do it on our own, should be the first to admit fully, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am corrupt. Yes, there is darkness in my heart. Yes, there is brokenness in my heart. And to take responsibility for what we have done and own up and say, yes, I have done that, and take that to Jesus, who takes the blame for us. So first, take responsibility. Uh, and second, uh, grieve. True repentance grieves over sin. Now, we saw in this passage in 2 Corinthians 7, this idea of worldly grief. You notice in Genesis 3, Adam, he's focused on the consequences. He's focused on the fact, early on, he's focused on the fact that he was naked, that God caught him, and he was experiencing the consequences of his sin. And it is entirely possible for us, when we sin, to grieve over the consequences of sin, to be sad of the brokenness that has been caused by our sin without actually truly being repentant. We're sad that our actions cause someone else to hurt, maybe, or we're sad that our actions cause something that's uncomfortable for us, but what true godly repentance does is it grieves over the sin itself. We grieve because we have sinned against God. We grieve because we have sinned against others. You notice that Adam never once considered the fact that he had sinned against his wife by allowing her to fall into temptation, by not protecting her from the serpent. Not once did Eve grieve over the fact that she had handed the forbidden fruit to her husband and said, here, take this and eat it. They had both sinned against each other, and neither one seemed to notice that. But true repentance is grieved over the fact that we have sinned against someone else. Third, confess. Take responsibility, grieve over sin, not just the consequences of sin, and confess. Again, Adam and Eve, they want to hide. They hide themselves. They hide their sin. They hide their uh, what they have done. But true repentance, godly grief that leads to true repentance will want to expose sin. 
True repentance wants to get sin out in the open so it can be dealt with. Fourth, ask for forgiveness. Now, when we come to God and we ask him for forgiveness, we need to recognize that we're not asking God to overlook our sin. He is the holy judge. He does punish sin. The reason why we can come to God and ask for forgiveness is not, we're not asking him, would you please not punish my sin? Now, when we come to God for, for, uh, for forgiveness, what we are doing is we are asking him to place the punishment for our sin on Jesus, which is exactly what he has done. So when we have true repentance in our hearts, first we will ask God for forgiveness because our sin has been paid for by Christ, and then we will ask for forgiveness from those whom we have sinned against. Number five, pray for change. Scott led us in a prayer from Psalm 51 earlier, and in that prayer, David prays to the Lord, create in me a clean heart. When we are truly repentant, when we are grieving over our sin, we hate sin. We want to change, but we also recognize that we can't do it on our own. We can't transform our own heart. We can't fix ourselves, however many steps we might try to take. So that will lead us to go to God, to run to him, to hide in him, and ask him for transformation, him to create in us a clean heart. Ask for him to renew a right spirit within us. And from there then, we can go to number six, which is to forsake sin. Again, if we're truly repentant, we want to flee from sin. And we can do that by the power of God. In uh, Romans chapter eight. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit of God, we can forsake sin. We can put sin to death, but only by the Spirit of God. And then lastly, what is true repentance to do? It pursues obedience. Our grief over our sin leads us to, to take responsibility for our sin, to be broken over the fact that we have sinned against God, over uh, uh, sinned against others. It leads us to get it out in the open, to confess, to own up to what we have done, to ask for forgiveness from God, to ask for forgiveness from those who we have sinned against, to ask God to change us. And we will want to leave sin behind and we will want to run after God, to run in obedience, to run in righteousness by the power of the Spirit of God within us. And so I would ask 
as we consider the example that we've seen in Genesis 3, as we've considered the gospel of Jesus, this Savior who takes the blame for us, uh, where are you? It's a question that God asked man in the garden, and maybe God wants to ask you that question today. Where are you? Maybe you've been drifting into lukewarmness, and you need to hear God's voice called to you today. Where are you? Maybe sin has carried you far further than you ever expected it to, and you need to hear God say to you today, where are you? Maybe you're hiding your brokenness behind a facade of having it all together, and you need to hear the voice of God say, where are you? Maybe you're hiding your sin behind religious deeds, keeping up a front of righteousness when you are hiding things in the darkness that you fear anyone ever finding out about. And maybe you need to hear God say to you today, where are you? Are you running from God? Or are you running to God? God. As we consider what Jesus has done in his life, what he has done in his death, taking the blame for us so that we can be washed white as snow, so that God can become our hiding place, the question that you need to ask is will you hide from God or will you hide in God? Let's pray together. Father, I believe that you want us to hear your voice today asking us, where are you? And Lord, I pray that we would run to no other hiding place. Because, Lord, there is no hiding from you. But, Lord, in Christ, you have made a way for us to hide in you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us grace to be broken over our sin, to grieve over the way that we have sinned against you, to grieve over the way that we have sinned against those that you have placed in our lives. Even those who have sinned against us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to repent. To take responsibility for what we have done. And Lord, to take our sin to the cross where we can find forgiveness and cleansing and power to change. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.